This is episode 53 of the Swallier Pride podcast, and today's guest is Joan Kelly Arsenal. I'm so happy for this conversation with Joan. I know so many of you have said, you've got to get Joan on the podcast. You've got to get Joan on the podcast. If you don't know who she is, she's an incredibly brilliant woman, such a such a nice woman as well. So I'm so excited we, after months and months of back and forth, we are finally able to nail her down. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Joan. Joan has over 35 years of experience in the diagnosis and management of pediatric and adult dysphagia across a variety of settings. She has presented in the area of dysphagia on a national and state level and is a regular guest lecturer in graduate programs throughout New England. Joan is board certified in swallowing and swallowing disorders and sits on the American Board of Swallowing Disorders. She is the CEO and owner of Mastex Imaging in a mobile medical practice for dysphagia consultation, including MBSS and esophageal assessments to the stomach. So without further ado, I hope you love this conversation with Joan. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, Joan. Hi, Teresa. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me today. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. I know we're all so excited to hear what you have to say. Oh, thank you. All right. So I did a little blurb in the beginning, but tell the people a little bit about who you are. All right. Well, I've been a speech pathologist uh, for too long, over 35 years, um, and I've been involved in swallowing and swallowing disorders since uh, the early 90s. I was trained by Dr. Jerry Logeman when I went out to Northwestern for a week, and of course, uh, Kathy Lazarus was there also. And um, I have worked in all different settings. I uh, started the swallowing program with other colleagues at Mass General Hospital, was there 15 years, did some home care, skilled nursing, and now I own a mobile medical practice that does modified barren swallows, and we've had that in business about 12 years. Awesome. All right. Well, where should we get started? What do, what do you want to talk about first? Well, I, I think you and I both have a passion for instrumentation and yes. the need to uh, be advocates for why we do instrumentation and the importance of that. And I think maybe if we could jump in there, and I, I'd also love uh, for you to jump in at any time because I know you've been an incredible advocate also for the need for um swallowing to be diagnosed and develop a treatment plan based on what we see. Yeah, yeah. Um, One of my big things is that we don't have x-ray vision and that we write such incredible bedside notes sometimes that um, perhaps doctors and administrators and other non-speech pathologists read that and think, wow, this is wonderful and why do you need instrumentation? And I think um, it's so important that we get the word out there of why we do instrumentation in the first place. Yeah. So what I hear a lot it, when I do in-services is, oh, well, we know they're aspirating or they're aspirating. Why do we need that study? And I'd like to remind all of us that 
the reason we do instrumentation is really not to say whether they're aspirating or not. It's really to define that pathophysiology, the biomechanics of the swallowing, and really to pinpoint what's wrong so that we can then target treatment, but also to determine what um, is the proper diet level. Not everyone yeah. needs to be put on uh, puree, nectar, puree, honey, uh, when they have a swallow problem and they're even at end stage of life. So it's to me, it's extremely important to look and um, to really, um, what's the word I want? Really look into when you're doing that swallowing problem, what is that problem? What is wrong? And answering that question. And I think we need to make sure we are answering the question when we do our instrumentation um, so that we're able to better serve our patients. You know, I think that's such a good point. I think we're over, but we need to just get back to answering the question simply. You know, what is wrong with the patient? We've now got so many things. We're trying to answer a million questions, but really it comes down to what is wrong with this patient? What specifically is wrong that is causing, you know, these aspiration events or the pneumonias or, you know, the diet to be changed, but really... If we can simply get to the heart of the matter and just say, what is wrong with this patient and right. figure it out, it, it would be a lot better for everybody. And I also think for us, um, if we see a patient and we haven't answered the question, then we need to dig further. We're that yeah. swallowologist. We're that person, that's, that professional out there that's kind of guiding the, the medical care of this patient, and we're part of that team. And if we don't find the answer, like there's a cough, and we don't know why there's a cough, you know, is it a cough because they're on a PPI and it causes a cough? Is there a reflux? Is there something else going on? Is there some underlying neurological problem? You see a, a neuro swallow, what I call neuro type swallow on instrumentation with no diagnoses. Well, we haven't answered that question. We've answered what's wrong with the swallow, but we haven't answered why. What is causing that? What's the underlying disease process? And if there is one, and how do we support that patient? Uh, to our medical team to say, listen, you need to look further with neurology or this or GI or, or those pieces. So I agree with you. I think that, um, unfortunately, it's out there with not in our profession of, oh, did I pass? Did I fail? Did I aspirate? Right. Not. And it's much more than whether they aspirate. It's why, when, before, during, after, strategies, all of that. Right. So let me ask you, Joan, because you've been in the field for a, a little bit of time. Do, <laughs> You're so do nice. You, <laughs> do you, um, you know, at, at what point have, have you kind of watched this whole instrumental fight for instrumentals evolve? Do you think we've somehow gotten to the point where some SLPs believe they do have x-ray vision? Or, you know, how have we gotten this far down the rabbit hole where we're fighting so hard to use the technology that's been around for a while. I, I think there's a couple things, and I do think we've gone down that rabbit hole, and yeah. I see it every day. I have personally had speech pathologists tell me they have x-ray vision. Yeah. <laughs> it floors me. So, so um, you know, let's think about that. Let's think about that in our own field. When someone has a voice problem, right, do we treat that voice problem, or is there an automatic referral to ENT before we're allowed to treat that patient? Because they need to look and look at the disease process and know what's going on. To me, that should be the same in 
swallowing. I think uh, same thing with if you went to a doctor and they said, well, God forbid, Teresa, you have a brain tumor. And I think my best guess is that it's here and I'm going to go do surgery or I'm going to give you these pills to treat that. They look. Same with rails in the chest. There's rails in the chest. What do we do? What does the nurse do? Send for a chest x-ray. I think we've gone down the rabbit hole in a number of ways. I think um, in some areas there's been very limited access to instrumentation. I think that has changed with uh, mobile fees, mobile swallows, modified bearing swallow studies. Um, I also think that um, the level of training that is received in graduate school is um, not up to par in terms of how to interpret instrumentation, only because there aren't very many advanced classes across the country, hard to fit everything in. And um, I think that, unfortunately, some of the people do speech trained in instrumentation perhaps are stopped by a physician who doesn't understand or a radiologist. So the information given by that instrumentation is not always uh, helpful to the treating clinician. So I think it's a combination. And then, of course, the big elephant in the room is uh, efficacy and, um, and money. And yeah. I think we do write these great notes. We do change diets and start treatment without instrumentation. And then uh, an insurance company or administrator says, well, what do we need that for? So right. I think it's a combination of all those things. I think what we have to do is advocate advocate to an insurance company that, look, instrumentation's important. This is why we need to do it. Uh, and number two, that a patient should be allowed to have a modified bearing swallow and a feast. And they are not, it shouldn't be either or. And I yeah. think it, um, you can hear my passion, and I know you have it, that we need to stand together in terms of what does instrumentation give us. I can't Absolutely. tell you, Teresa, particularly in the intellectual impairment population. I'm, I am in five states in New England, um, and I am seeing this on the rise where an intellectual impairment patient goes into the hospital from a group home, perhaps has um, a UTI, some type of unrelated medical condition, was on a pretty regular chop, chop diet, thin liquids, um, no history of aspiration pneumonia, um, no his history of respiratory issues, goes in the hospital, um, gets put on a puree honey. The other day they tried to put a G tube in. Um, yeah. No instrumentation. Came back to the group home. We saw them, and um, they're back on their, their regular diet. And I'm not saying that patient wasn't um, – I'm not saying they didn't um, have an issue, a muscle weakness um, when they went in the hospital, but um, that instrumentation should have taken place and been recommended – prior to anything that severe. So yeah, yeah, um, what, what are your thoughts? What, do you well, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, you kind of hit on a few of my chords. <laughs> and I think particularly, you know, we talk about in grad school how there's not, there's, there's not enough time to cover everything. But then I think I look at some of these syllabuses and I hear from some grad students and they spend like five or six courses learning or five or six classes learning how to do a clinical swallow valve. And I'm not taking away from that, but if you're spending that much time teaching someone how important this this is, how important that documentation is, and really almost poo-pooing the importance of fees and modifieds and spending half a class on that, you know, kind of no wonder that we have these new grads coming out 
well, I don't really, why do I need an instrumental? You know, I do a very thorough clinical swallow exam. And it's like, well, I didn't know. (laughs) I totally agree with you. I also tend to see sometimes that teaching being, when would you, when, what are the indicators to do one versus the opposite? When is it, when is it that you couldn't do it? And that, and you should be able to do some type of instrumentation, you know, 95, 90, 9% 9% of the time Absolutely. versus it's the opposite. Even in a hospice patient. We, yep. I saw one, a patient the other day, we recommended hospice and um, we had a discussion with um, the referring physician because they were shocked we didn't put the patient on puree and nectar. And uh, we spoke about the residue and why the choking hazard, why we were recommending puree. But then we spoke about that they're aspirating this same depth the same amount of thin versus nectar and the evidence base that you could cough um, thin out easier. So why would we put them on nectar? But we looked and we compared that and we were allowing them to make that, you know, certainly that decision. But that was our decision with my physician that we you don't need to thicken the liquid because we've looked at that. And these are, um, are you know, what we would recommend and uh, moving forward. And I think that's very important. Yeah. look at that. I almost wish we could do some of these, more of these case studies, like with grad students or with new grads, because I'm sure you know as well as I do every time I, I go to it like a new facility and it's a new grad that's the SLP and they're shocked. Right. You know, their face is just like, well, I've had them on honey because they've been coughing. And it's like, yeah. they're coughing on every consistency. Right. Uh, you know, so it, it, it's, it's, I think they need that kind of mind blowing, jarring, reaction in order to understand why these are so important and why their recommendations at the bedside may be good for a day or two till you can get an instrumental in, but it's not a life sentence, you know, and, and I know, you know, as well as I do, you get those patients that have been on honey thick liquids for three years. Yes. You know, they were acutely ill for two or three yes. days in the hospital and no one ever followed up with them. Correct. And I think that that's what I see too, is that they may need to be on a restricted diet for a short period of time. But um, there isn't that recommendation, or perhaps there's a miscommunication or lack of communication um, across the hospital to wherever, the facility or the home care. And um, I, I think we should not be leaving our patients hanging on these very restrictive diets if we haven't looked. And certainly, if they've gotten better, we need to look in instrumentation. You're, you're doing your best guess. Plus, yeah. where this is a great um, uh, thing to talk about to an administrator. We're adding to the healthcare cost. If we're not providing the appropriate treatment, the appropriate strategies, or the appropriate diet level. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I think, um, I think we need to advocate more and more um, I, it, it's an enigma to me. A physical therapist, you have you have something in your leg, you get an X-ray. So I, I, it's very fascinating to me to see this in our field. Can you elaborate a little more on those healthcare costs, Joan? Because I know even just last week I got a call from an SLP that, well, the administrator sees that the test is you know X amount of dollars, and they're not willing to spend right. that. Well, I think a couple things. I think, you know, certainly the SNP quality ratings in 2018, this past January, went out looking at 30-day readmission. Um, aspiration pneumonia, I believe, I'm doing this off the top of my head, I think it's number five 
of a reason for um, readmission. GI issues are number nine. And an overall aspiration, I think, is three. And you know aspiration pneumonia gets bumped into the uh, pneumonia code, excuse me, pneumonia uh, diagnosis. So pneumonia, aspiration pneumonia, and GI issues are within the top 10 reasons for a 30-day readmission. So if we don't diagnose these properly, that patient in a skilled nursing home has an increased risk of ending up back into the hospital, and then that nursing home's going to be, yeah, money is going to be taken back. So that's number one. Number two, the cost of an aspiration pneumonia, uh, I think average may be around 15000 but up to $40,000 uh, cost risk. I can tell you that um, aspiration pneumonia is the highest mortality rate for a patient in a skilled nursing facility. And so all of those costs on top of um, honey-thick liquids and the cost of um, thickener, nectar, um, I know that Swallow Solutions, Dr. Joanne Robbins has some wonderful data out there on her website about the actual cost. And I might, let's see, the cost to keep one resident on thickened liquids for one year can cost between 2000 to 7000 a year. The cost of managing a patient with a feeding tube is 31000 per year. So those are um, certainly known facts, and that can be presented to an administrator for a cost of, you know, mid-300s for an instrumentation uh, mobile up to 1200 I know is the cost in the hospital um, setting, that that is worth the cost. On top of um, putting a patient at risk for... Yeah. A, a bad sequela or treating inappropriately and raising those costs. Yep. Any other ones you have to add that I left out, Teresa? No, those were, those were all the main ones. I think, you know, people don't realize that, well, we'll just put them on nectar and then we won't, you know, do any sort of instrument, instrumental examination. And it's like, well, if you just leave them on nectar for one year, right. that, you know, even on the low end is 2000 bucks. Right. Um, and how many of your patients go, I've been cheating and I've been drinking thin liquid. <laughs> Yeah. And it makes yeah. you go, gee, and what's happening? And there's been no pneumonia, so why are we? And you look, and you're like, you're right, you can have thin liquids. I had someone yeah. the other day. But it wasn't that they had inappropriately put them. They put them on and then immediately got instrumentation. So yeah. that yeah. Uh, speech pathologist was wonderful, got instrumentation right away, put them on a little more restricted diet based on what she saw, but she said, we need to look. And then we were able to um, upgrade. So yeah. in that sense, that's very appropriate. Yeah, I think, and I think that's exactly the point that I want to make because I don't want people to think, well, what about if on my bedside if they are coughing or choking right. or whatever? You know, you, you make your best guess, but then you still order the instrumental. You know, even if you are a little more restrictive while they're acutely ill, there's absolutely nothing right. wrong with that, knowing that you have the pending instrumental that's coming right. up. And I you think know, it's just, for those speech pathologists who are struggling with an administrator, um, giving them information. I know you have a lot of information that's wonderful on how to talk to an administrator on your website. I also think going out and giving an in-service, a picture is worth a thousand words. Yeah. And when you show a modified bearing swallow or a fees, and you see that administrator sees, even on that patient that's in their home, and why you're making these decisions, I think it's a big eye-opener. Yeah. Joan, do you guys let family members in your van? Yes. To, you yeah. do? Okay. We, That's great. Um, in fact, we encourage the treating clinician to come on board. Um, unfortunately, there are some um, uh, of the rehab companies that we 
allow them to come on board. I'm not sure why, but um, we ask that, you know, we want the treating clinician there. It's not required, but we prefer that. Um, We absolutely love any family member. I've actually had physicians, the medical director at a skilled nursing facility come on board or rehab hospital we go to, as well as nursing. I think for family members, it's really critical. We do a lot of quality of life discussion, particularly with our physicians on board. And we are a proponent, um, except in very rare conditions, perhaps like a head and neck cancer, who would need a tube to get them through that radiation but still needs to swallow. Um, so we're not a big proponent at all of recommending MPO and G2. Um, we will um, put in our recommendations of quality of life that G-tubes don't extend life and they also don't decrease the risk of getting an aspiration pneumonia. And then we'll put a recommended diet if the family and caregivers wish to go ahead with that. Um, we've had those conversations on the van. I think it's very important to have those conversations. Um, and they're watching the swallow study as we're doing it. And our physicians pointing things out as the speech pathologist is in the back um, with the patient and performing the study. So it's been very eye-opening. I had this incredible story. Um, uh, it was two stories, actually, uh, two different patients. So there was a patient who was schizophrenic, and his brother had the, was the healthcare proxy and made all the medical decisions. The patient um, did, wanted to be on the puree then because it was easy for him. Yet you know all of the emotions that are in eating, right? What do we do first with our babies? We feed them. Our children feed. Social, eating, all that. So the brother couldn't understand why his his um, brother had swelling from one to be on puree and was forcing him to have the more difficult food. So we did the swallow study and the brother was there. And the brother saw the immense difficulty and the poor biomechanics with the higher food levels and he apologized to his brother. And he accepted this diet level that was appropriate. And it was just yeah. such a moving moment. Um, yeah. The patient cried. Um, the other story was someone who just wanted to have kibasi. And we <laughs> stuck barium on it and yeah. <laughs> kind of slid off a little bit. And he can have kibasi and they all cry. And so yeah. there are moments of teaching that are so important. And for a patient to also sit. They can't see, we give a copy of the DVD, let that be reviewed with the patient so the patient understands why do you have to tuck your chin? Why do you have to swallow again? Do you see this residual moving better? Why do you need to do these things? I think it's instrumental in patient care to have that visual um, video of the child. Yeah. And I know we've talked a lot about the the opposite end of the spectrum, the restricted end of the spectrum. But like you said, you know, sometimes we do need those restrictive diets a little bit more. And same thing, I had a patient um, that that really wanted the puree and did better with the puree and the family just kept forcing Big Macs. They kept bringing in Big Macs. And so I brought the whole family in and we set up for the fees and I, you know, just gave my little quick elementary tutorial and just said, you know, we don't want to see green go in here. If we do, we'll talk about it. It may not be the end of the world, but you know, we don't really want to see too much green go in here. And the the Big Mac was just spilling in the airway. Yeah. Um, and, and the family was like, well, we don't want to see that. That's not what we want to see. Right. Oh, my goodness. What's going on? And, it, you know, it was like, that's what we've been telling you. Right. You know, the, the woman's had recurrent pneumonia like six times. You know, yes, the Big Mac spilling right into the airway. No coughing, no choking, no nothing. 
So, you know, that's like you said, a picture is worth a thousand words it sometimes is. just for the family to, to realize that. Yeah, too. very helpful. I think having family members on board during instrumentation is just uh, extremely helpful um, when they can come up with. Yeah, that's great. Do you know, Joan, because I do know of a few MBS vans that won't allow the family on board. Do you know why that would be? Is there some like radiation restrictions in some states or anything uh, no, that you know of? Or? No, there shouldn't okay. be that I know of. Okay. Um, you know, we certainly, we have our physicists, we have all our rad badges, uh, kind of on our van where the rug is, we call it the rug. Yeah. Um, radiation is not dispersed past there. Uh, okay. And certainly if someone's pregnant, we, we do suit them up. We're always, the, the funny part of mobile life is we're always the first to know if a speech pathologist is pregnant and we mom, uh, and mom's the word, yeah, um, yeah. so we can't say anything, but, yeah. um, <laughs> even, you know, even if it was a family member, we would explain that. And while no radiation gets past a certain point, we still let those people up. But there, I, I, um, to me, to, as far as I know, I don't know their, what their vans are like, but, um, there should be no reason. Okay. Unless they have a different, set up and yeah. um, then we gotcha cool where do we want to go now I want to I want to talk a little bit about uh, Dr. Kate Hutchinson's work which I've been really impressed with um, and the digest it's called uh, it's a, a standard scale out there and and it right now it's uh, has reliability and validity on the head and neck population and I believe um, Kate is working with some others to look at this in terms of the neurological population. Um, it is only a scoring system for the pharyngeal area, so I hope at some point something is developed for the oral um, stage. Um, but what, what I'm really impressed with is how she relates her findings to efficiency and safety of the swallow. And I think that's where we have to go in talking about swallowing, because again, a lot of um, non-speech pathologists, the other medical professions, think it's a test of aspiration. And so she relates the efficiency, of course, to the residuals, how much, um, and how is that affecting the efficiency, affecting the malnutrition or dehydration factors. And then, of course, we have the safety, which would be the aspiration consideration and on the respiratory system and pulmonary system. So um, I've been very impressed with that. We've loosely been utilizing that to help guide us because, again, it's not standardized on uh, outside head and neck. Um, but I really think it's a, a place to go for us that we start thinking in terms of efficiency and say, I think we do safety, but efficiency. And when a swallow is impacted with both, that certainly is in, uh, the severity level is very high. Uh, or it can also be high if the residual's there and you can't clean them out. They didn't aspirate, but you know they might. So right, um, right. that's something I highly recommend um, everyone look at, which brings me to standardization. So um, standardization um, to me is is important in the modified barium swallow. And I've read and looked up a lot on this. And um you know, Dr. Brownwyn Jones, um, a long time ago said that, um, we need to have a standard portion, but then we need to tailor the exam to, um, the patient. So, you know, Dr. Uh, Bonnie Martin Harris has done a lot of work in this and Dr. Katrina Steele. And so it, I think it's very important that, uh, if we can't get to a national standard, at least within your facility, 
And so like within my mobile unit, we have a standard swallows to puree. And um, we keep that standard there. And certainly within what we're giving, we might do a compensatory strategy, um, move to a nectar or uh, we rarely go to honey, but move along uh, the continuum liquids. After puree, the more advanced textures, your ground, your mix, bread, um, those are decision makers based on what you're seeing in the biomechanics. And Dr. Katrina Steele's done a lot of work looking at um, her protocol, shifting it, and it did not add um, any rad time, radiation time. And I think it's important that we, at least within your own facility, you need to have a standard portion because as you're looking at a patient reeval, if what I'm doing is different than someone else as a standard portion, how can I reeval if that swallows different or not? And certainly I don't mean don't do a compensatory strategy. You put that in there. Um, I think it's, it's just so important and we're just, we're still not, we still don't have common language. We don't. We have pieces that people are moving towards, but we don't have a standard language nationally as I like. And my second point comes to the ITSI, and I'm so appreciative of um, the ITSI group that developed a standard diet. We adopted it two years ago, and the reason we adopted standard diet language is because if I went to nursing home A and they said mechanical soft, and then guess what? Mr. Smith, a year later, is now in nursing home B, and they say mechanical soft, or they say ground. And I'm like, they're always worlds apart. What is that? What <laughs> yeah. does that mean? So we have adopted only um, utilizing um, a standard diet. So we do the ITSI. We are still, if a facility is using a national dysphagia diet, which is going to be phased out um, hopefully in 2019, uh, we will utilize that that terminology. Um, and then there is terminology in the intellectual impairment community but I know they are also moving to the ITSI. So I think it's extremely important that we are talking apples to apples with diet. Um, there are, People have died. There have been reports of people dying um, because a nurse interpreted a diet based on a bedside or an instrumentation to mean this when in fact it meant that. So um, I am a huge supporter of the ITSI and uh, highly recommend um, everyone start to look within their own facility of how can they start to move towards that. Um, and the resources out there are incredible for support to do that. Yeah. Are you guys using the MBSIMP, Joan? Um, we're using it loosely. My clinicians okay. are trained in it, but we're not using it um, probably uh, to the standard that Dr. Um, Martin Harris had in terms of of that, but we use it loosely. We do use the PENAF scale. Um, we've moved a lot towards to digest. Yeah. Um, so um, we are, the MBSIMP scale, I think, is a wonderful start. It's sometimes difficult in our environment. Um, it, you know, we don't have a place to go review the study later. We review it then and there, but um, it's, it's, it doesn't fit so nicely in our practice. Gotcha. gotcha. But everyone okay. is trained in it, so. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm going to back you up a little bit, too, because just talking about doing a protocol, I think, you know, my biggest beef with some of the facilities around here is I'll get MBS reports that they just trialed honey 
the patient aspirated and they discontinued the study. What would you say to those SLPs? I would say that was a worthless study. Yeah. I would say that you don't understand why we do instrumentation and the purpose of instrumentation. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a Logaman girl. Uh, she always thin liquid first, teaspoon. I always do it in 99.9% of the time um, because if they aspirate, at least it's not coating anything. Uh, they could, you know, the chance of them coughing it out is a little better than something thicker. And I always want to test that first swallow with that thin liquid. Um, I think it's a disservice to do a restricted instrumentation. What It's not telling you anything. Right. Um, and I think that's part of the problem in our field. And, you know, I've read many reports, I'm sure as you have, and it doesn't tell me anything. It doesn't right. tell me, okay, they aspirate. Did they aspirate before, during, after? Why? And did you do a strategy? Did it work or not work? Um, so I, I'm sad that's still going on, but it's, it's, it's goes off. I know. That's what sad. just drives me nuts is I wonder where, where, you know, you even said you've been taught by Dr. Logeman herself who started with thin, you know, who the heck started with honey ever and taught someone to discontinue that study after. I don't know. Seems like there's a whole slew of SLPs doing it, but we can't seem to right. find out who started right. that. I think, um, <laughs> you know, I, I do think that, I don't know, I don't know this for a fact, but I've heard that some facilities, it's the radiologists, oh, they aspirate and stopping. I think okay. the, I, I think the key is that if your radiologist doesn't understand why you're doing this and what you need to do, then that needs to be a discussion. Um, we're very lucky. Our physicians, we, we own that part of the study. And so, um, we don't have that type of, um, um, relationship with our doctors, but um, I know it can sit there. So to me, it's an education of this is why, uh, uh, this is uh, the information I need to get. And by you stopping that, I'm not getting that information. I also see a lot of, I, I see when it's a more complicated patient or perhaps a diagnosis someone's not familiar with, they, they get stuck and maybe don't know what the next step is. And that's not good either. So if someone's working um, in isolation, there are many people who will help. I'm sure you would help. I would help. There's people all across the country that would help mentor someone or look at a video and, and help support that person. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and I think that brings up a great point. I want to encourage anyone, you know, I think, I, I don't know again where we went wrong with this either, but oh, SLPs no. are just being thrown into doing instrumentation without any sort of proper training or, you know, and I've talked to some people and just... Well, my rehab director said since I'm an SLP, I should know how to do modified right. barium swallow studies. So this is I just kind of self-taught myself. Right. Um, no, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, anybody yeah. that I we can all learn from our mistakes. Yeah. So I guess if you're out there and that's what happened to you, please reach yes. out to someone and try to get some formal training now. Um, it's like you said, there's a lot of people that would be willing to help. Right. And I'll talk from my experience, okay? This was, like I said, too many years ago to say I was trained a week by Dr. Jerry Logeman and, and uh, now Kathy, uh, Dr. Kathy Lazar at Northwest. A week. I came back to Mass General. We implemented this. We were very lucky. We were able to hire Lisa Newman, who now is Dr. Lisa Newman, who actually was um, independent and had worked with Jerry for quite a while. And so she came on our staff 
and she further supported our education. So to think that I knew what I was doing within a week, even though I was trained by, you know, Dr. Logaman, I didn't, but I was so uh, lucky to have a su other support there. On top of, we worked with the head of radiology, head and neck at the Mass Ioneer, and we had that whole, while they were learning about swallowing, we also had that input. So we had a very collegial relationship. And um, I was very lucky later on to do outpatients at Mass General Hospital and the GI, with GI radiology, uh, Dr. Debbie Hall, chief of radiology. And we, she learned from me and, and oral pharyngeal, and I learned from her. So it's that collegial learning. And unfortunately, something happened where radiologists don't want to even do the study. Part of it's reimbursement, which... Um, for the 92611 code, which is the speech pathology modified barium swallow code, we get paid maybe $80 to $100, which to me is um, inappropriate given the level of expertise uh, that needed to perform. So, um, and a radiologist, I think, gets paid less. So, um, it, I think there's a financial component that drives this. I think that um, for whatever reason, um, where we have not advocated as well, uh, perhaps that we could. Um, and um, I think that's a huge disservice to our field and also to um, our patients. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you, Joan, you, you talked about getting trained for about a week with Jerry Logeman. Um I know some SLPs will or some companies are just advocating, you know, I don't know, uh, all states are different in the number of studies that you need to get before you can be deemed competent or independent. And some are just doing, you know, 10, 15 normal studies and telling the person they're competent. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of why you need to, you know, there is this huge push to understand normal swallowing now, but when you're doing instrumentals, you need to know what is crazy abnormal right. and what is not right. right. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think there's a continuum. So, Head and neck is very different from neuro. And a lot of people are trained in neuro, and a lot of people don't know head and neck. So even a clinician out there for a long time doing swallow studies, they may not know a pocket of a population like head and neck who's so different. And so, first of all, we need to recognize as a professional that even if you have 30 years' experience, there are pockets that perhaps you need other support and seek that support or say, I am not competent to do that patient population. And I don't always see that. Um, yeah. The other piece in terms of training, I have a clinician coming on board um, in a couple of weeks. She actually was a graduate student with us. And unfortunately, we can't take CFs, um, not just because this law going on, but more because, um, you know, ASHA doesn't feel that they have therapy. They're only doing diagnostics. So it's been very difficult for us, uh, understandably, to take a CF. Yeah. So yeah. she was trained by us. She was very confident when she left. However, confident with the supervisor there. Our training protocol for her, I anticipate, she'll be on the van four days a week, I anticipate a minimum of probably two months of direct supervision with her. And that means 100% reading of her swallow studies. And then yeah. after that, depending on um, how quickly she um, has that down, would be how quickly we 
pull back on that. However, within that scope of training, even up to a year or two, if there is a patient that is very different, a head and neck, or we do see two-year-olds on up, and I tend to be the one who does the pediatric. If there's oh. one, yeah, if there's one that, if there's a patient that has a very complicated diagnosis, then we're not going to send that person out alone, or we, luckily, we have the capability that I can get right on remotely, like we're doing now, yeah, and do yeah. the study with her. So I yeah. think it's a continuum. I think 10 normal swallows is, is you're not trained. And I think right. there's classroom ta- training and there's real life. And I also think you have to have the treatment part. You have to know the treatment. You have to know um, the strategies. You have to know that. So um, I don't know if I answered your question. I don't, I don't feel I can yeah. give a number. Because I think there's an individual. Well, and that's what people say is, how many do you think? And I'm like, ah, there's some SLPs that are brilliant that, that get it within a few weeks, a month or two. And there's some that, like you said, a year or two out, they're still asking questions and and that's not a bad thing, but you can't just say that after 10 normals, you, you've seen everything because there's no way you have. And I've, you know, I've seen people who say they're trained and they're not. And, um, I think the biggest key is, is that clinician, regardless of the number of years experience, are they open to understanding their limitations? Are they open to learning? And are they also open to at some point going, you know what, maybe instrumentation's not for me because Mm -hmm. I can't grasp it. I think pretty much anybody can grasp it, but it does take work. It does take that inability, that ability, excuse me, to look within, to see your strengths and weaknesses, to recognize them, and to know when to seek help. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the title of this podcast is Swallow Your Pride, but I think that goes for a lot of us. You know, I think sometimes it was hard for me because I was out doing fees for so many years, and then I, you know, started partnering with other people, and they're like, oh, let me read your report. And I was like, ah, (laughs) You know, but it's like, okay, I, you know, I, I'm grateful if you can tell me things I've missed or, you know, I think that's how we get better as a profession. If we're okay with, you know, having our, our peers, you know, review some of our work and see if we're missing things and what we can add. And, you know, like you said, I think that whole strategies treatment piece is a huge part of what a lot of um, SLPs doing instrumentals are missing. Right. And I have a little, well, I don't know if it's funny, but a little story about (laughs) treatment. Um, I, had a patient and um, they really dumped uh, probably three quarters of filled up the pure forms prior to the swap. And I had a CF, this is no lie, say, you need to try a chin tuck. And I said, well, I really don't want to try a chin tuck. They've really filled up the pure forms. Um, and when you tuck your chin, you widen the molecular, but you're going to shorten the pure forms and I'm, they're going to dump in. And I don't think it's an appropriate strategy. Oh my goodness. You need to try blah, blah, blah. So I said, <laughs> I gave in, and I tried it, and the patient had straight. And I looked at them, and I said, was that worth the extra radiation time making someone, you know, when when the pathophysiology is saying, perhaps that's not a strategy to try? And yeah. so there's a place you try strategies, and, and um, then there's times where you go, well, maybe, and try but there are times where that strategy is not appropriate to what you're seeing. So we shouldn't be putting those in. And that's my big thing with the chin tuck too. Uh, the nurse and doctor, they, they, 
tuck your chin and your swallow will be fine. I don't know how that yeah. got out there either. I, I had an SLP. I think I might have told this story on the podcast already, but a few months ago I had an SLP. We did the study on the woman, you know, same thing. She was acutely ill in the hospital, but she'd improved, you know, came out of everything. Swallow looked beautiful on the study. I get done. I'm typing up my report. You know, I asked the SLP, do you have any other questions? She said, no. And the patient said, can I finish drinking that cup of water? I said, yeah, sure. And so the SLP says, well, make sure you tuck your chin. And I was like, why? Right. And she said, well, that's what she needs to do. And I said, in what country does she need to do that? No, we just did this entire study and everything's fine. Right. She doesn't need to tuck her chin. <laughs> and the SLP was not happy with me, but I just, I could not grasp why she still wanted her to do that for no reason right. whatsoever. I, I still see that. I agree. <laughs> I, I, I don't understand. Yeah. I don't understand either. Yeah. And I try, you know, and, and I think that's where it, it gets frustrating because I try to be so open and understanding and, okay, maybe this is a teaching moment. And, and the SLP just was not willing to listen, you know, and I just, I kind of explained to her why we didn't need to do that and what we saw specifically on the study. And I, maybe I didn't explain it well enough during the study. Let me take some time now. And she's still just, nope, I think she needs to do it. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so. You win some, you lose some, I guess, Joe. You do, you do. But the important yeah. point is we advocate and, and yeah. teach, right? Advocate yep. and teach yep. all the time and mentor. Yep, yep. All right, so I wanted to uh, bring up one other thing, um, and, and probably uh, this is, I think, a hot topic. Um, yeah. I feel very strongly that we should be coming together as a field and as swallowologists that it's not about fees is better than modified, modified better than fees. We should be advocating for our patients that you could have both. These are complementary examinations. They are not exclusionary. And I think what's out there, particularly in skilled nursing facilities, they want to pay for one. Insurance company wants to pay for one. And then it's become this internal battle. Rather, the conversation should be instrumentation, and a patient should have both. If both is needed. And I feel very strongly that we are doing a disservice in our field by having that type of back and forth, this versus that. Let's think about our patient. What's most important for the patient? There are times that you need both. And, and, and we should be advocating for that. Um, you were, um, you know, an example, right, would be a patient could get a GI study and the EGD. Um, yeah. And there isn't, oh, well, you had one, so you can't have the other. So, right. The GI is not going to fight with the other GI about which test is better right. and more important. And, you and know. in our, in, in rhetoric out there, it's um, becoming um, a disservice to our field yeah. and a disservice to the patient. And the administrator needs to understand that just because someone had a modified doesn't mean they can't have a fees. Just because they had a fees doesn't mean they can't have a modified. And, the insurance company needs to understand that. And unfortunately, um, that's not where it sits. And yeah, yeah, I think we need to put our egos aside and work together for the good of the patient and advocating for instrumentation and advocating that there's no reason to not have both. And if you have pharyngeal manometry coming in, then you should be able to have all three. Yep, yep. And, and I, I love what you said, Jonah. And it's so funny because I think I... 
I just lived in a state where we didn't have mobile modified vans. So I was like, oh, well, this mobile fees procedure is fantastic. So that's what I'm going to start doing. And I had no idea the backlash I was going to get from some peers. Well, why are you doing modifieds? And it's like, because I can't in this state. We aren't allowed to do mobile modifieds. That's why I'm going to do mobile fees. I want instrumentation for my patients. If you have access to that test and that's where you're going to get the best, most thorough study with a great SLP giving you great thorough results, then that's the test that you're probably going to do. And I think that's how I base a lot of my kind of advice is, okay, which ac- which test do you have access to? And which one do you know you're going to get a good thorough study from? Right. And so. I think you're right. And I think um, we've got to do better at working together and making sure we're giving the same message because it only harms our patient and it harms yep. our field. Yep. Yep. I agree. And I got a bone to pick with some researchers too that will hop on board and say fees is this or should only do fees for this. We should only do modifieds for this. And no, right? No, I I agree. I <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you said that, Joan, because yeah. I completely agree. I think you know we're such a we're so many smart SLPs all together. You know we're such a smart profession and we're we're just eating ourselves alive. So we are. Um, yeah. And if you or your facility are interested in a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP, uh, please check out our sponsor. That's NDOHD, pronounced NDOHD. Go to www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. And I have gotten my hands on this equipment, and it is absolutely beautiful. They are, are not paying me to say that, but I've got to tell you guys, this equipment is absolutely beautiful. It is so user-friendly. It is so easy, 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 easy to use. That's not on my scripts, but I'm telling you guys this anyways. Um, it is easy to operate these equipment, fully automated archiving with zero downtime, intuitive software with one-touch recording, immediate fee study review, customizable fees report template provided, the maneuverable design provides convenience to do fees in more locations in the hospital, ICU, CCU, PICU, exam room, patient room. Again, contact www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fee systems requirements of pricing or to request a live product demonstration. You know, I'm starting to wonder is, is it, are we, do we need to branch off? Do we yeah. need to um, not be that comprehensive. Our field has grown so much in wonderful ways and doesn't need to uh, branch off a little. And I know some programs have more medical or more voice and, and that. So I, you know, I'm, I'm starting to think that and um, swallowing is such its own place and has such significant risk and health factors that um, I just feel we've got to um, focus on that. There are still graduate programs because I gave a talk at ASHA last year on um, our how we take students and how we work with them and our training program to help get them um, somewhat independent in swallow studies. There were people in the audience that the swallow class is still shared with the motor speech. And I, I don't understand that. I don't understand how it's not its own and also, the advanced classes are very minimum across the country and how yeah. that isn't there. And um, yeah. forget whether you do instrumentation or not. To me, that's the starting point of not training clinicians well. Then they get a job in a nursing home. They don't know what they don't know. And now they're making poor decisions. 
that not only can harm a patient, but also feed into perhaps I just do a bedside or I can find these things out because of the lack of training and perhaps lack of support within that facility. There are some facilities that have wonderful support, um, wonderful support, but um, it's not everywhere. Yeah. I think that's what I like to stress to people too, is there's just like you've, you know, you and I have both seen both complete opposite ends of the spectrum, you know, and there's some SLPs that will just say, don't even tell me I should recommend an instrumental because it's not going to happen. And, you know, it's like, those are the people that I tell you, you know, when you put those types of limitations on yourself, you get to keep them. Right. You know, if you're not even going to try to fight for your patient or fight for your profession, then that's where you sit, you know, and they'll say, well, I don't know where these facilities are that will, you know, allow that type of freedom to access instrumentation. And there's plenty. There's plenty. There's hundreds. There's there's thousands. There's many. There's so many facilities out there that are trying to do the yes. right thing, and and that's up to you to find yeah. it during your interview process. That's right. You know, I tell people ask ask when you go in for your interview. Are you gonna let me order studies? If the answer is no, then you walk, you pack up, and you walk out. I had a similar situation. This was probably about six years ago, where a facility would um, not would allow the instrumentation, but not until the patient was on med leave. And the speech pathologist yeah. spoke to me, and I said, number one. You, your license is in line. You should write in your note. You recommended this. If you recommended it and they don't follow through with it, then should a lawsuit come, then at least you recommended it and you don't have control after that. And I said, number two, do you really want to work for a facility that's putting money and costs above patient care? I said, I can't answer that question for you, but that's something for you to think about. And perhaps have, you know, go and sit with that administrator. We'd be happy to go with you if you need that kind of support, but talk about why and really why it's costing more money if you wait. And so um, I think the situation actually changed for the better because that person was able to advocate. But, you know, it, it's hard. I mean, I think about that new grad and maybe he's in a, in a facility or per diem. They don't have a set speech and they're coming in. And they don't have those advocating skills because they're, they're not um, comfortable going up against an administrator. That's a, that's a tough skill to sit down and advocate, particularly when you're uh, first out of school. So, you know, I, I understand that dilemma. And perhaps that's what we should start teaching in some of our swallow classes. Yeah, yeah. I know a lot of grad programs are adding yeah. in an advocacy piece, which is just wonderful. Yeah. For our field in general. Yeah, yeah. But I also think we need to teach more about instrumentation. Yes. Too. No, I agree. I think that's first. <laughs> if, yeah, we're, yeah. if we're caught for time, yes, I think instrumentation. Um, it would be very interesting, actually. We can do this, Teresa, to send out a survey to graduate programs. How do you teach about instrumentation? Three, yeah, I would love that. You know, um, are you teaching? What are you exposing your students to? How much time? And what are your what are you teaching in terms of? when to order and not order. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. I remember, I think it's so funny what I do full-time for a living. I had one slide on in grad school. Yes. So I, had, I had one slide. I had none because yeah. we, ah, we didn't do swallowing when I was in grad yeah. school. Now I'm dating myself. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> I was going to be an aphasiologist. Look what happened. Swallowing. Look what happened. Swallowing came along. But you're just living proof that so you can come out on the other side. <laughs> that's right. You, know? you don't have to stay in your I, little cocoon. That's right. And, yeah, I, I moved. Well, I shouldn't say from the dark in the swallow side. You you progress. I progress. Yes. 
<laughs> All right, Joan, is there any anything else you want to add? Or I think we covered everything. I, I think we covered um, everything. Um, I would like to just end with the ASHA position statement, right? Yes. Uh, let's, do let's see what it says. The purpose of a bedside or screening is to determine the likelihood that dysphagia exists and the need for further swallowing assessment. However, aspiration and other physiological problems in the pharyngeal phase can be directly observed only via instrumental assessment. So what about those SLPs that are documenting pharyngeal impairment without instrumentation? They should not be. They could say, I suspect. All right. But further uh, assessment of the biomechanics and the pathophysiology is needed to determine the appropriate treatment and compensatory strategies and diet levels. There you have it. My best guess is, however. Beautiful. That's what Thank you, do. Joan. Uh, and I think that's wonderful. For, thank you for sharing that as well because people always say, well, ASHA doesn't make a stand on this. And, well, they, they pretty much do. So They do. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so thank much, you. Joan. It was great to see you. It was great to see you. All right. You take care. Bye-bye. You Thank too. you. Bye-bye. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening. <laughs>